0: Welcome, everybody, to the latest Mark Steiner Show podcast. Good to have you with us. As we approach the 50th anniversary of both the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. and of the launching of the Poor People's Campaign in Washington, D.C., that was the last movement that Dr. King created before he was taken from us, we need to not just reflect on our history, but examine the present and talk about the future. In 1968, over 3,000 of us lived on the mall in Washington, D.C., in a tent city that was called Resurrection City. It was the heartbeat of King's Poor People's Campaign. Demands were made then to spend $35 billion a year to end poverty in America and the building of 500,000 new homes a year until every poor neighborhood was transformed and that land be returned to black folks in the South, to Mexican Americans in the Southwest. In poor whites in Appalachia, and that the United States must have full employment with a living wage or a guaranteed income. Those are among the major demands. Today, we're still fighting for economic and racial justice in our country. And a new poor people's campaign is rising in America, founded by two people who are our guests today. The Reverend Dr. William Barber II and the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. Reverend Barber became famous in our country as the architect and founder of the Moral Monday movement that exploded throughout North Carolina and then throughout the South and other parts of the United States. He was president of the North Carolina NAACP, and he wrote a book called The Third Reconstruction, How a Moral Movement is Overcoming the Politics of Fear and Division. He is also pastor of the Greenleaf Christian Church, a Disciples of Christ congregation in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo-Harris, who is co-director of the Cairo Center, and a founder and coordinator of the Poverty Initiative. She spent over 20 years working in grassroots organizations like the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, the Vermont Workers Center, Domestic Workers United, the United Workers Association, from right here in Baltimore, where we broadcast from, and the National Union of the Homeless. She's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church. And the Rev. Barbara and Theo Harris are the leaders of the new Poor People's Campaign. Before we hear from... Rev. Barbara and Theo Harris, we want to open with some words from the Rev. Dr. Martin Luther King. These are words he spoke when he went to Mississippi in 1967 and saw firsthand the depth of poverty in our country. It moved him to tears. It moved him to action. It moved him to think about creating a poor people's campaign. This is what launched it.
1: At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents To further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today, many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. This is what we are faced with, and this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington, in this campaign, we are coming to get our check.
0: We open our conversation with the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. So, Liz, do tell me, I'm just curious how your work in the Kairos Institute, how that led you to uh, William Barber and rejuvenating this Poor People's Campaign.
2: Great, right, yeah. So, so we started the Cairo Center in November of 2013. And it builds off of, you know, 10 years of work prior of a center at at Union as well called the Poverty Initiative. And what um, the Poverty Initiative and Cairo Center has been focused on really since our beginnings has been looking at the Poor People's Campaign and um, trying to figure out for today how to reignite or resurrect or build a new uh, Poor People's Campaign. So when we launched the Cairo Center in November of 2013, our keynote speaker was Reverend William J. Barber, um, and that was some months after the first kind of set of Moral Monday's activities and actions were taking place in North Carolina. The you know idea behind the Cairo Center and the work that it draws from is looking at the intersection and connection of religion and spirituality and values um, and how they... Play a role, a deep role in the strengthening and building of social movements, and so it made a lot of sense for Reverend Barber to be one of the keynote speakers for that event. And um, we immediately started thinking and talking about, you know, deeper work together and the need to, you know, look back in history in terms of the Poor People's Campaign of '68 and to build something similar today, um, but but for these times and realities.
0: And that, you know, I've been really interested ever since this came about, the resurrection of the Poor People's Campaign, or as it is known as a Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. That's right. And so how do you see this? I mean, I I was in preparing for the course we're teaching on the Poor People's Campaign and reflecting Mm -hmm. back on that moment when I was one of the folks organizing there and living in Resurrection City. Uh It was a very different time. And obviously, this is a dream of Martin Luther King Jr.'s. He was assassinated. He never saw that come to Mm -hmm. fruition. Um, Mm -hmm. It didn't come to fruition exactly as he dreamed it to come in terms of the massive civil disobedience that that he wanted to see take place on Mm -hmm. on the mall and in D.C. and around. So, I mean, how how do you see that connection? I mean, 50 years hence.
2: Right. I think, I mean, we, for the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Before we even announced and launched the campaign, we actually started the process of starting an audit of, of this country. And um, the reason we started to do that audit was because if we look at the past fifty years and since the time when Dr. King and others, you know, say the job is not for and folks like yourself, Mark, um, were a part of this poor people's campaign and, and the vision of it, you know, um in in sixty seven and in sixty eight, um, you know, what we what we have found is that, you know, poverty and racism, ecological devastation and the work on immune militarism have really not gotten better. And in fact, um, in many places and in many ways, gotten a lot worse. And so, um, you know, what, what we've been talking about and, and seeing as necessary, being in poor communities and all kinds of communities across the country over the past series of years, is the need for reigniting the Poor People's Campaign and finishing some of the unfinished work of the 6768 campaign. And um, so the Poor People's Campaign National and National Call for Moral Revival, you know, is deeply inspired by um, the 68 campaign. Um, we think there's, you know, deep theoretical and theological lessons from that campaign and from especially what Dr. King and others, you know, were, were trying to do. Um, but we also would have to do a four people's campaign and we need a, a moral revival in this nation, even if folks 50 years ago hadn't taken up um, that call because, you know, when you look at, at what's going on and, and when we're in communities across the country, you know, clearly people need to come together across race, across geography, across gender, across issue um, to be a powerful force for, for change. And so, um, so we take great inspiration. We think that you can't actually commemorate
0: depths of poverty looks like in America now because many people just are not aware of it and don't want to be aware of it. Um, It's almost hidden in many ways because of our political rhetoric at the moment. But before I get to that and tie to that is that when the Poor People's Campaign came about in 67, 68, um, there was this national movement taking place that came out of the civil rights movement. Uh, The anti-war movement um, had exploded onto the scene because of the Vietnam War and other things okay. were going on in America at that time. And we're in a very different moment uh, in terms of where the movement is, in terms of the national sense of movement. There are a lot of things going on in people's communities, but there's not mm-hmm. a sense of a national movement like there was then just because of the moment that it was and trying to end segregation and the rest. So is this a more difficult time to make this happen, a more complex time to make this happen? I mean, what are the variables you think are different?
2: Yeah, no, I think this is this is really important. I mean, I... Think what we see as necessary um, with the Poor People's Campaign, and National Call for Moral Revival, is is that we need a breakthrough. We need something that puts out the possibility of people coming together across all these lines and helps to spark, you know, deep organizing. Um, some of it that's already going on, but connecting up with new organizing that is going to have to take place, um, so as to be able to kind of be, you know build a state-based moral movement that can that can have a national impact. And so I I think there is some really good work going on in communities across the country. I think there are people that are are you know have been around the struggle for a while and folks that are coming in new. Um, but but there isn't a national movement or even a series of movements. But but a lot of the things that exist out there, whether it's the Fight for Fifteen and the Movement for Black Lives, the, the Dreamers and some of the immigrant rights work, um, some of the anti poverty you know, deep anti-poverty work that has been going on, whether it's around homeless folks, around welfare recipients and low age workers. I mean, all of those different struggles are, are, are saying we need to come together and unite. And so the call for the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, comes out of all of those kind of movements and activities. And, and I think, you know, we're poised for something big, because I think people are ready. They're um, seeing some of the limitations of the The grassroots organizing that they're doing just around a particular issue. They're seeing um, how we need to come together across race and geography. Um, They're seeing how, you know, uh, young people and people that have been around for a while all need to do this together. I mean, and so I think there are surely challenges to doing it right now, but but they're not greater than the challenges that, that our ancestors have been able to persevere through. And so, um, and the kind of energy is, is you know, really tremendous.
0: We are now about to be joined by the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II.
3: Yeah, I think that we have to own that America has always had struggle dealing with the poor. You know, when America wrote its first constitution, it said that about women about African Americans, certainly slaves, Native Americans. Uh and you know, even at the turn of the twentieth century, the late nineteenth century, there were all these struggles around how do we deal with the poor. So is it a local issue? Is it a federal issue? So there were all of these struggles, uh that you had, for instance, the uh, social gospel According to um, a book called um, One Nation Under God, you know, the, the, the rise, if you will, of Christian, so-called Christian America, uh, but you've had this, this whole move by corporations to buy the pulpit of America so that they could then use the pulpit not to preach about social justice, but to preach a kind of perverted uh, a predestination that says if you're good, you go to heaven, if you're bad, you go to hell. If you're good, you want me poor. If you're bad, you're poor. So poor is basically uh, a, a problem of personal morality. And then that, then I mean, none of that history actually deals with the history of race and the willingness and and, and, and the years and years, of slavery and Jim Crow, which in itself has created, you know, generational poverty.
0: As we said earlier, one of the dreams that, that Dr. King had was this massive civil civil disobedience to take place across Washington D.C with thousands of poor people uh, coming to D.C. That never really took place um, for mm-hmm. lots of complex reasons. So I'm curious, what what, what you all plan and how you see um, this revival taking place, this this national call for moral revival taking place, and what form it will take like that, or will it take a form like that?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, well, you know, again, you know, Dr. King called for 3,000 uh, poor people from 10 poor communities across the country to come together to D.C. And what we think is necessary now, um, given how much of the kind of repression and some of the cuts and the, the really extreme legislation that is taking place is happening on a on a state level, that we think that what needs to happen is that people need to come to D.C., but people also need to go to their state houses um, in their own states. And so what we're talking about right now is, is the idea of hundreds were thousands of people um in each state um uh you know acting in concert together um and folks um in washington dc also um, but focused particularly on McConnell and ryan um because again so many of the voter suppression laws uh, so many of the the um you know lack of immigrant protections the, the lack of uh, living wages um, are happening on a state level and so so what we're talking about is hundreds and thousands of people in, you know, 25 to 30 states across the country um, acting together for 40 days um, in, uh, you know, uh, organizing education, but also direct action and uh, the disobedience movement. Um, and so um, there's some similarities there to what Dr. King and others were talking about in 68, but then there's also, you know, how do we do this today given the realities of what's happening and, and how do we really build power from the ground up in states across the country.
0: You know, I was thinking about something we talked about earlier, which is how we define poverty in America today. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I said was we defined, we're defining poverty in the definitions we use in the beginning of the war on poverty um, yeah. and the price of food right. and, and uh, defining poverty. Um, and exactly you know, $11,000 for an individual or $23,000 for a family of four, if I have that right. But you really pointed out very clearly in a piece you wrote with Willie Baptiste um, that we have to really probe what that means and redefine our notion of poverty and living at the edges of poverty to really understand the the vastness of the issue that faces America.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I I mean, I really appreciate this point that, I mean, the poverty rate, um, you know, there are more than 40 million people living out or below the poverty line you know or you know below the poverty line in this in this country and and that's actually a 60% increase from 1968
0: when the poverty line 60% um, increase
2: Yes yeah, 60% more poor people people living um under the poverty line today than than in 1968
0: in that classic definition the old definition
2: In the old definition right. 60% more right, right. But but then, as you were saying, that old definition is, is limited, right? I mean, it's based on a food budget when, you know, although fuel costs are rising and food is getting more expensive, you know, the, the things that people spend money on the most today are housing, their health care, you know, their, their, you know, other, other things, transportation, you know, and so, um, and then also, uh, um, you know, there's just, I mean, there's just there's a real limitation to, to even looking at the poverty line. And yet yeah, there are more than 40 million people in this country who are living, you know, in desperate extreme poverty below the poverty line. But but if you if you look at the supplemental poverty measure and you look at who is poor and low income in this country, it's actually 100 to 140 million people who are experiencing um, poverty. Um, and experiencing deprivation of some sort. Um, And um, there are 80% of people in the United States right now uh, are at some point in their lives will experience not being able to make their ends meet. 43% of American kids right now are living in food insecure homes. I mean, these, these numbers are not about some small group of poor people over there. But in fact, you know, poverty is reaching people of all races of all ages of all genders, um, all religions and living in cities and urban areas and suburban areas and exurban areas um, And it's, it's a you know, it's a deep and persistent problem um, and uh, and so to us kind of defining and redefining and broadening and, and deepening our understanding of who is poor um, is actually an important part of what this campaign is about because um, we think that we need to unite the you know millions and hundreds of millions of people who are experiencing poverty or something very close to poverty into a powerful force. Um, you know what Dr. King talked about was that the poor and dispossessed, um, if they can be helped to organize together, they will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life, right? And so we we follow that same idea, which is that if there's 140 million people who are living, you know, not being able to cover all of their expenses, you know, not able to handle a healthcare emergency, or maybe they're working two or three low-wage jobs just to keep themselves partially afloat, um, that that is... A, a huge number of people, forty-three point five percent of the American population. That that's a lot of folks um, that that can be pulled together into a powerful force for change.
3: Uh, but I think that what we're talking about in this moment is you're you're exactly right. The way in which you measure poor has been wrong from the time it began. It shouldn't have just been about food. It should have been about you know the, the, the total welfare of the human being. And so what we're saying is we, there's some interlocking realities if you're going to deal with poverty. you got to deal first with systemic racism. If you look at every state, for instance, that has been on the forefront of voter suppression, those states have the highest poverty levels, the, the lowest access to living wages, the, the greatest resistance to health care, the greatest attacks on the LGBT community, the Latino community, women's rights, uh, labor union rights. So the very states where you have the systemic racism of voter suppression you are also the states where you have the highest levels of poverty. So we're looking at systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation of war economy. And then this distorted moral agenda that's promoted by Christian nationalism or white evangelicalism that basically says... under $20,000 a year for a family of four, which is actually ridiculous to suggest that if you make $22,000 a year uh, for a family of four, you're not poor. Um, We're we're seeking to help people to see this, put a face on it, because America's not going to face it until it sees the face. And to challenge these realities, particularly at a time when we're spending four and five times more on war than we are lifting up people's lives, when People who get elected to office get free health care, but then they don't want the people who elected them to have the same health care they have. Uh, When we have corporate leaders making 300 times more than the average worker, but then resisting living wages, you know, we see that we have to challenge all of these things together. And that's why we've done an analysis of where America was in 68, where it is now. We have 15 million more poor people. So we're not going forward in this reality. And we can't allow the Republicans on the one hand to say, well, that's the failure of the world poverty when they did everything to undermine the world poverty. But we also can't allow the Democrats to talk about middle class and the working class. And one of the most insulting phrases that Democrats use when they say the white working class, because that further entrenches a racialized narrative that black people don't work, <laughs> uh, which, which, which the racializes or what we need to talk about again is how these
0: I know you both are really busy, and we don't have a lot of time left for the conversation today. So let me ask a couple of quick questions here, and they're both very political. Um, one of the things that I, I was thinking about was that that uh, I was reading one of the pieces that you wrote, Reverend Barber, and, of course, I read all the pieces that you wrote, uh, Liz Theo Harris, And, and you, you ended one of your pieces with this quote um, from uh, somebody many of us don't know in history who I think people need to remember, George White, who was the last— African-American to be in the U.S. Congress. The speech he gave in 1901 before he left Congress. And you have the last line of a speech in there, which is, this may be the Negro's farewell to Congress, but phoenix like he will rise up someday and come again. And I raise that because I keep saying to people now that we are in a very dangerous, volatile political moment. And that, to me, we are in a place in American history akin to 1877, when they did take America back destroyed Reconstruction, began terror against black folks, divided white and black poor people in the South, and, and and created this world. And now, from the 30s to the 70s, where this movement has taken place that, to change America, to make it more equitable, to open it up, the little we, the, what we have accomplished, the same thing is happening now in terms of, especially with this new presidency in Congress, to take it back. Um, and so, I don't know if you agree with that analysis about where we are, but I, yeah. but if you do or don't, then what does that mean about where we have to go?
3: Well, I do believe that we're in a in a third reconstruction. I believe we're in the birth phase of a third reconstruction, and I believe that the, the white hegemony and uh, white supremacy and nationalism, and I don't measure white nationalism by simply what happened in Charleston, as ugly as that was. I look at policy because white nationalism, white supremacy, is always about policy. And you're exactly right. 1877, we had a president that was uh, elected, not elected, lost the popular vote, got in by the electoral college, which has its own racial, history, racialized history, and then subsequently, uh, actually went around the country after he got elected, saying, "I'm getting great reviews, and everybody's coming together." At the very <laughs> time that pulled the troops out of the, for the troops out of the South, white. Uh, racism was going up. Black and white people were being turned against one another. And by uh, in, in seven, what, let me see, uh, um, eight, six years after his election, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was overturned. By 1896, you have Petty versus Ferguson. By 1898, you have the Wilmington riots and then the riots in Springfield. And basically, by 1940, The payment is the iconography one hour we have to change that we have to change that and that's part of what the launching not the ending but the launching of this movement
0: is decided to do well how would you add on to what the reverend barbara was just saying about the political time that we're in and what this might mean
2: yeah i mean i think that there is a real potential um for people to come together uh across these lines of division because i think um uh because we're seeing it actually happening, um, too. I mean, so some of the examples that Reverend Barbara was talking about, you know, contemporarily in terms of um, moms who have lost their kids because of the lack of Medicaid expansion and homeless folks um, out in Washington State who are being attacked um, in their homeless encampments. I mean, so many of these different grassroots struggles of people um, are actually coming together across all these different lines of division, Um, but they're not talked about in the media in a, any in any regular way. And so the idea that Latinos and Native folk and, and Asians and poor whites and, and blacks in the Gulf Coast are, are all in organizations together fighting back and trying to figure out, you know, what what needs to happen in the wake of, of Katrina, of the BP oil spill, of of all the kind of calamities and, and, and crises that have happened in, in the Gulf Coast or, or the fact that, you know, in in Grays Harbor, Washington, um, in in the county where um, it's the highest um, uh, juvenile incarceration rate for non-criminal offenses, um, where actually some of the white supremacist organizations are going into those those prisons trying to organize folks into the neo-Nazi movement, um, that you actually have poor white folks there you know, connecting up with Native and Latino and, and other People of color to say, you know, we as poor people can't be divided, and we're going to organize together. And I think we have we have that reality happening, um, and it's at the base of the campaign that we're we're building. Um, and and so, you know, if we look at the historical context and the current, you know, context, like Reverend Barbara was talking about, and then we add those kind of stories and, and examples of actually how people are coming together, you know, both to 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 fight to build this for people's campaign a national call for moral revival, you know, get ready for the 40 days of, of organizing moral action, direct action on violence, civil disobedience. Uh, we can see, you know, the, the great possibility of, of change. And, um, you know, and again, like what we, what we're finding, you know, in the mass meetings that we're doing in the, in the organizing tours that we're, we're a part of in the, in just the day-to-day work that folks are, um, a part of, um, just like a great interest, a great enthusiasm, and a great urgency and need to come together, and and so there's all kinds of unlikely allies, you know, finding common cause with each other, um, and so um, you know we put that plus the uh, you know the different kind of examples and statistics that that Reverend Barber was using, and uh, and and we can, um, you know, we see some real possibility. I mean, it, it's not it's not a given, and that's why we need to do this work together. But but um but it's um. You know, just that making making people understand better. You know how economic insecurity, how poverty, how how deprivation are are so prevalent in our society, and it's not individual people's fault, but in in fact that it's structured into the way that society is, and that that's why people need to get together to make a change.
0: And we want to thank you all for joining us today for this podcast. And we'll leave you with these words, also from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. These words were about racial justice and creating economic equality and income distribution in America. This is the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. many people in power don't want us to hear. We we'll leave you with this today. Thank you for listening.
1: The promises of the great society have been shut down on the battlefield of Vietnam, making the poor, white, and Negro bear the heaviest burdens both at the front and at home. The other thing I want you to understand is this. That it didn't cost the nation one penny to integrate lunch counts. It didn't cost the nation one penny to guarantee the right to vote. But now we are dealing with issues that cannot be solved without the nation spending billions of dollars and undergoing a redistribution of economic power. Yes, yes. All labor has dignity. Yes. But you are doing another thing. You are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people ...to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. ...America's opportunity to help bridge the gulf between the haves and the have-nots. And the question is whether America will do it. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. The real question is whether we have the will.